Welcome back to episode 19 of the This That Podcast. Today's episode's a belter. I do it with another guy that I met on Twitter. Um, I seen that he was an adventurer. He roams around the world exploring cool places. And I was like, right, let's get in touch. See what it's all about. So it's a really interesting conversation around traveling, around adventure. Um, He has a really interesting story to tell about his veteran status and the altruism he wants to display around that and it was just it was just an incredible conversation so um i hope you like it i also made ai generated music as an intro so let me know your thoughts because i'm going to put it just here and then we're going on to the episode podcast and today we've got a guest on that really excites me um so wandering nick is today's guest and he is someone that i met through twitter actually um twitter the things all things magical you can meet anyone on there um and as soon as i seen your profile i thought oh wow we're gonna have a lot to connect about just based on your travel and adventure so for anyone listening who doesn't know who you are how would you kind of describe yourself or pitch yourself in 60 seconds? Well, it's it's funny, actually. I was thinking earlier when I was reading our messages, I was like, I know we linked up on Twitter, and I was trying to remember what it was that actually connected us together because it was a certain post, and I was going to go back and look that up. Um, my name is Nick Henderson. I am a full-time traveler. I, I'm able to do that because I'm a commercial pilot. Uh, my schedule is one week on, one week off. So in my off weeks, I use... Um, just a combination of my work, being able to travel around a little bit. And then I've also been uh, maximizing my miles and points to be able to pay for travel that way as well. And uh, let's see, 60 seconds. I grew up overseas. I was actually raised in Indonesia. I am an American by birth, but I grew up over in Indonesia, traveled my entire life while we were over there. And I have just never stopped. So I've been to 55 countries so far, six of the seven continents. Antarctica is the last one that I need to get to. I'd like to make that happen soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm building a business. I'm building a, um, a travel vlog, a, a social media presence that goes with that, and a, and a travel brand that's associated with that. That's uh, my second or it's my third business that I've actually worked on building up uh, from the ground up. And I just love doing that sort of thing, too. So that's awesome. me in a nutshell. I think you in a nutshell is uh, very, very clear. I really do want to get into all of the travel content and what you're doing just now and what you're looking to build. But I think what gives context to any of that is what you mentioned in there about growing up abroad. So I was wondering if you could give us a bit more information on what it was about that time that kind of sparked this passion, this interest and what it is you're doing just now. Yeah, I think that the thing that, that really anchors me to what I'm doing right now in regards to the travel wasn't so much the travel that we did while I was living overseas. It was living overseas. We were totally displaced from our home in the United States and not even like a little displaced, you know, some families that moved to Australia and it's, it's like the same thing. Um, (laughs) But we went to the most remote place on earth and it was, we were in Papua New Guinea. We're in the mountains of Papua New Guinea in the rainforest. Uh, My dad is a mining engineer. He's working in a mining town up there. 
And uh, we're surrounded by prehistoric tribes. You pick up a copy of National Geographic, there's at least one section in every issue about these tribes in Papua New Guinea. And so that's where I grew up. And it was an international community. The school that I went to school in, we had kids from Russia, Australia, the Philippines, Indonesia, America. Uh, if you named, you could essentially, if you named a country, you know, their family was there working. They were in our school. So I grew up in a very multinational environment. And I think that really just kind of not only sparked my interest in travel and getting to actually see these places where all these people were from, but I think it also fostered just a sense of kind of a global citizen uh, sort of philosophy in life. Like we are all connected. We all want the same things. We're all kind of moving in the same direction. We, you know, we, we want to support our families. We want to be happy, healthy, that sort of thing. We're all after the same thing. So. It sounds as if you have like a really uh, an understanding for people from all walks of life. I think people that grow up in one country, they tend to have this kind of patriotism about that country and they see people from different countries as maybe less than or not as important. But you seem to understand that everyone's trying to do the same thing. Everyone's trying to take care of their family. They're trying to grow up. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you then take and you kind of educate people around you about that? Because from the outside, America seems like maybe a more secular society. Anytime I meet Americans, um, they're always kind of uneducated about geographical uh, like relations and politics and stuff like that mm-hmm. as well. So is that something you've found that you've had to do is educate um, those around it's- you? It's so true. It is. And and you see like those jokes go around in like travel groups or where, uh, you know, the, the Americans get to the country and they're really disappointed that there isn't American food in Italy. And you're like, well, hold on here. <laughs> or uh, why don't they speak English here? And you're like, well, it's kind of not their thing. <laughs> why don't you learn some of their words? Um, absolutely. I think uh, people that don't travel really do suffer from kind of not getting the whole picture. It's like we live in this awesome world and there's so many great things to see and there are so many great people in this world. But if you stay in one place, it's like uh, you've taken a canvas you know, and, and, and God's painted this beautiful picture on this canvas, right? But there's a cover over it. And when you stay in one place, you've only peeled back a little bit of the, of the corner of that cover. And so you may see something that's really beautiful where you're at and you know, you're surrounded with great people, sure. But until you're able to get that whole cover off of the off of this artwork uh, that is our our world, uh, you really can't appreciate the grandness of what we are living in right now. Mm. So I can I can completely understand that as well. I've not been to as many countries as yourself, but I've done lots of Europe. And I came from a stint in uh, Nepal, Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, okay. Indonesia, and I'm currently in Australia. Plans okay. to go to New Zealand, Japan, South Korea this year or so. Um, I can awesome. I can speak for the the passion that I have for travel as well, and I think everyone should do it because it really opens your eyes to so many things. Yeah, and that is something that with the travel content that I that I'm looking to produce as I'm building this this travel brand and this travel vlog is taking people who are in their living rooms maybe and aren't so uh, inclined to travel. And taking them to these places and showing them more than like the resort on the beach. And that is like the resort on the beach is not my way of travel. I like to go to a country and just see everything as much as possible. Um, so the resort vacation is not my style. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to be able to take people and show them that there are people who are living here. And then, you know, it may look differently, 
right there, but they're still going, their kids are still going to school mm. and they're still going to the market and they're still worried about their bills and they're still worried about their, you know, they got the sick grandma that they want to take care of. Like we share so much, regardless of where we are in the world, we share so much. Mm. With that, the travel content is something that you used to make a while ago and now you're now relaunching back into that sphere. Am I right in saying yeah. that? You are, you are. I, uh, I started a, a blog, oh gosh, it was probably, uh, I want to say 10 years ago maybe, and it was called The Roaming Pilot. And it was really more of a personal blog and it covered not just travel, but it was also aviation related things. I was starting out as a pilot. I was kind of writing a lot about what that experience is like, learning to fly, the career progression as a pilot. And eventually when that job took me overseas, like it took my father overseas when I was a kid, I went and lived in the Middle East for a couple of years working there. And it really then started to morph into a travel, a travel blog. Um, from that, it became what was called and still exists. It's called Wander Together. Um, and that was a, it was more of a travel couple account uh, when, when I had that going on. And it became uh, about more traveling with other people or traveling with the family, that sort of thing. Um, and then about three years ago, pretty much all travel content production stopped. Life kind of got crazy. The whole world kind of got crazy. And uh, for the last three years or so, there's been a real standstill on things. And right now I'm in a place where I'm relaunching. Uh, I've relaunched the roaming pilot as a concept uh, that's on Instagram. And then the YouTube channel is where I'm focusing now, this long form content, telling stories that are able to be connected to. And then by default, the way the media is going right now, short form media content as well. Mm. What is it about long form do you think is so good in being able to convey the message you want to convey? I think the, and I, I, I love long form content when it's done right. You know, when you put uh, the work into capturing a story, meeting people or, or really diving into a place. I think the thing about long form content that I really miss because we are as a, as a global community going to the short form videos, you know, one minute or less is what people really kind of connect to right now. With the long form stuff, you're really able to get deeper. And it's that deeper understanding of a place or of a, of a custom or a, or a food or whatever. It's that deeper understanding that allows you to really appreciate it. And I don't think we get that appreciation anymore in short form content, even though that's the dominant one. Uh, I was looking at, you know, to make a short form video right now, you're limited to 60 seconds, one minute. That's what you have to present. And so I've posted, I've been doing that uh, with new, with the new social media platforms and just going into the analytics for that average viewership on these. And if you read, you know, there's a lot of blogs that do the analysis of this stuff. You're really averaging like 11 to 12 seconds of actual content connection with viewers. And mm. so that's what you get a 10 second window to present something. And you can't tell any story in 10 seconds. You can barely introduce yourself. I had 60 with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that our attention spans have got to the stage. Um, where they are so short and we are so distracted. And I'm really hoping that longer form makes more of a return, which is one of the reasons that I focused on podcasting actually is that yeah. um, I wanted to kind of spread a message that was similar to yours. What do you think would be your biggest challenge in producing this long form and keeping people's attention? Have you got any ideas of how you can make it more engaging for people? 
I, I, I do actually, as I've been stepping into this, uh, it's, you know, I'm launching a business. And so I have to kind of experiment a little bit to see what works and what doesn't work. And this idea that I would make these long form videos that are just me traveling, like, I'm not even sure that I want to watch that. And I'm wanting <laughs> a video. Um, and so what I've been experimenting with is, uh, connecting with the local, like, tour operators or businesses or even just local communities to find people or stories in those areas that are really interesting stories or engaging stories. And I'm approaching it from a couple of different places. So with, uh, for example, there's a tour operator uh, that I was talking to in Florida and I've uh, approached them about like doing some long form content where I'll come down, come down and essentially learn how to do their job. I'm going to learn how their operation runs, meet them, get their why talk to the person behind this, uh, behind this company. How did they get to this place where now they own this, this tour company and uh, experience what it is like to live their life and kind of see what the struggles are that they deal with and just present this as a well-rounded story where people get to see everyday people doing great things, following their dreams and building, building what they want to build. Mm. I think that'd be a good way to do it. I love the way that you phrased that and you said, get their why which I yeah. think is so important. And it's part of it's, it's funny enough that you say all this because it's something I'm trying to do with the podcast as well as put myself in the position of those people. And I think that is what's really missing is that level of what it adds to content is authenticity. Because for you, if you're putting yourself in their position and trying to live their life, you're speaking from experience at that point. Do you know what I mean? So you're yeah. you're no you're no longer just saying oh this is how this looks from the outside you're saying oh I'm here I'm doing this from the inside and it really adds a level of connection I think with the right. viewer. So with all this you said there's many places that you're going to visit um and there's tour operators the locals you're trying to gather amazing stories what sort of locations do you have planned for the next few years? Uh, well, for the rest of this year, um, I'm pretty well planned up through May, um, booked through May for the most part. So, um, after I'm in, I'm working right now, so I work every other week. Um, and that's typically in Ohio in the United States. So, but next week I'll be back down in Florida. Um, I'm going to be going out to a place called Silver Springs and there's a local operator there. He's a veteran, military veteran. I served in the U S army. So did he, but he went and launched a paddleboarding company and he uses this in a lot of different ways where he's, um, He's taking veterans out. He's taking people that are maybe um, uh, amputees out, and they're kind of kind of giving them the the power to kind of take back over uh, their life, their circumstances, and don't actually you know live in this place where life happened to them, but life is happening for them. So uh, he and I are going to go out, and we're going to go down to a place called Silver Springs. And right now, that is a really cool location because all of the manatees have migrated inland from the ocean into these spring waters in the wintertime. The springs are a constant 72 degrees. Uh, it's like 21 degrees C, I think, um, year-round, year-round. So as the water temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico and around the, uh, the Atlantic tip of Florida start to drop, the manatees all migrate up into these springs. And so this is the best time to go up and see them. So there, that's next. Uh, I'm going up to the Rockies, the North Idaho Rockies, where they cross into Canada. After that, I'm going to be doing some skiing up there with an operator. Um, exploring that area, there's some really great history there too. We're looking into the mining history and what really built this ski resort up there. It was part of a, a mining town, which connects to my roots. Mm. Uh, it was meant to kind of be a way to entice people to move into the area because it was really an undesirable spot to live. Mm. 
Um, that takes me through February. March is actually a really big one. I'm going to be spending three weeks between Portugal and Morocco, with most of that being in Morocco. Um, I'm going to be, and that's a whirlwind. I've got a local tour guide that I've partnered up with. I've been working with him on WhatsApp to build kind of a route and a plan. Um, with the emphasis being, and I told him very clearly, I said, listen, I'm not coming over here to go take pictures of the sites. I want to meet the people. I want to go to the the local spots. I want to find out about your customs, your culture, your traditions. So that's going to be a very cultural uh, deep dive in Morocco. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and there's going to be some good stories that come out of that. And then in April, it's uh, I've got a conference in Nashville that I'm going to. And then I'm going on to Amtrak for the Empire Builder, which is one of their historic uh, train lines that was built kind of was they were as the rail lines were building across the United States as we were connecting the East Coast to the West Coast. The Empire Builder is one of those lines that runs across the northern states that helped connect uh, both sides of the country. So it'll be neat to kind of look into that history too. It all sounds incredible the things you've got planned. What I'm really curious about is how much you let your own curiosities guide you in comparison to what you think the audience will want to see. And how you play that line of what your content actually becomes. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest hurdles I've had, and I and I really feel like um, maybe when I crossed uh, 50 countries or so, maybe it was even sooner than that, is that I started to kind of become a little bit numb to the newness of new places. Um, and, it, and it's a bit because of how common we have so many different common threads. I think, you know, I get to another country and I'm seeing a lot of the same things. And so... Uh, I have to look deeper to to find the real wow, the real wow factor, the powerful stories, the meaningful connections, and kind of letting that curiosity lead me. Um, as far as what my viewers want and what I'm trying to produce for uh, for the channel, I think that that's the same thing. I think it goes hand in hand. And one of my favorite things to do is to travel with other people, especially people that have never traveled before. Like take them to a different country. That is my favorite thing to do because. I spend most of the time just kind of like watching them react to things and seeing them kind of just take it all in. Like this is, this is an entirely different uh, (laughs) country though, though the climate, the people, everything's so different. I love that. And so I really want to be able to bring that element into the content that I'm producing where Mm -hmm. people are watching these videos going like, "Uh, I got to go see that. That's really cool. (laughs) That's what I would like to achieve. Yeah. It sounds like a, a very valuable route to go down um, to put people in that position where they do want to to go out and they aspire to travel because it's mm-hmm. something that absolutely everyone should do. What do you think your, your biggest lesson or your biggest takeaway from traveling to all these different countries being aside from the fact that we are all actually just people trying to learn? Uh, I think I think probably one of the main lessons i guess one of the main takeaways from not just traveling to these countries but maybe more so being able to travel to those countries is to not let fear dictate your life like you don't you won't ever do (laughs) what you can do if you don't if you stop it at your fears of it so you know when i talk about taking trips to places um with, with other people a lot of the times what you hear from them back are their fears um, you know, and, and there are some very real fears, you know, I, I, I can't afford it, get that. It's totally real. Finances are a very important thing. But, you know, people that are afraid of traveling because they've heard in the news about 
violent or civil unrest or the culture is so different that they can't really comprehend being safe in that place. So many people get afraid to leave. And I know this is really common in the United States. We've got a big country. There are people here who are afraid to leave the constraints of their hometown. And it's just for the fact that they, they're comfortable there. They're familiar there. And so I think the biggest lesson that I've taken away from travel is that once you cross that line, you have to step across that line of your comfort zone. Um, that's when you're really able to start kind of growing. And so you've got to be willing to kind of look your fear in the face and walk away from it. I love that about overcoming fears. I think that is very true. And it always, mm -hmm. always seems scarier than it actually is. You always build it up to yeah. be this big monster in your head and then you actually go and do that thing and it's way less terrifying than you ever mm -hmm. thought it would be. And people are so much more amazing. I remember I flew out to Nepal in February and it was my first trip in a few years. Um, and I was a little scared beforehand. And I got there and actually the first day was a bit of a culture shock. Because um, I landed in Kathmandu. And I'm not sure if you've been to Kathmandu before. But it's very busy. Completely yeah. different from anything I've ever experienced. Um, but after a day, people were walking down the street saying hello to me, asking me to try their local delicacies and just like the most welcoming people ever. I want to I want to put a hypothetical on you um, just now. Say, for example, everyone in the US had to do a month of travel to different countries every year. How do you think American society or American culture would change in response to that? Well, one, I think it'd be an awesome idea for two. <laughs> <laughs> Mandatory travel, get out. Right, I think that's great. Um, I think I think you would see a really, um, and I wouldn't even limit this to the United States, because I mean, I, I think that you see these these cultural kind of frameworks where people get locked into their beliefs. Um, like, and I saw that like it's really present throughout the Middle East or even in India where they have their beliefs and, and they're really constrained based on their societal kind of framework. And so if we were required every year to go spend you know, a month traveling or even just a couple of weeks traveling, um, I think what you would see is that as people became more cognizant of other ways of life, other cultures, other you know, societies, religions, other ways of doing things, you know, you, there's more than one way to crack a coconut. Like there is, you know, there's so many different ways to do things. I think that that would really just broaden your, your depth of experience would, would grow. Mm. And that would, I think just totally, it'd be game changing. If, if more people traveled and more people got out into the, and I mean, beyond the resorts, don't go to, <laughs> don't, don't go to Cancun and sit on a beach and, 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 and eat American hamburgers and then go back home and be like, yeah, Mexico was great. Like you didn't experience Mexico. <laughs> um, you got to go and actually experience it. Yeah. Awesome. I think that's the way to do it. See with all of this, um, you're going for really real experiences, the local experiences, meeting people um, out on the streets and their, their normal environments. Have you ever received any prejudice as an American? Absolutely. Uh, it's, and it's, it's unfortunate uh, because we do have a reputation that pre precedes us. Um, there is a lot of arrogance that people kind of automatically assume that you as an American, like you're not going to know the language and you're not going to care to try or you're not going to want to you know, try the local food or you can't handle spicy food. And I think I really kind of <laughs> having grown up in Asia, I was raised on spicy food. So I think I really surprised them with that. Like, <laughs> ah, that's, too, that's too hot for you. And I'm like, you're going to need to bring me more. <laughs> uh, what really helps is, I think, um, learning the language or at least, you know, basic 
basic kind of platitude, not platitudes, but the, the greetings, you know, learn yeah. how to say hello or good morning. Or thank you is a huge one. Even if the only thing you learn when you're in another country is how to say thank you, that is just gratitude and gratitude begets gratitude and makes people, you know, feel appreciated. So learning the language, and even if you butcher it, goes a long ways in getting away from those biases that are being, uh, those prejudices that are being put on you. Mm. And yeah, I think it's it's been definitely something I've experienced out there, and it is an American issue, I guess. And we have a, a reputation around the world. It's not. I've I've noticed with traveling, it's not only Americans um, that refuse to learn a language of different countries. A lot of British people are very bad for that as well, um, mm-hmm. where they have this like aura of self importance. Have you found there to be any nationalities that you just especially get along with? Like you walk into a hostel or a pub and you see a person from this country and you think we're going to click Asians. I'm <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Asians. And it's, it's funny. I tell people that even though I'm from the United States, like this feels like my second home to me. And mm. I feel like I was, I grew up in Indonesia. That was my, those, those are my people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, I really do gravitate to that region of the world. I love Southeast Asia, um, the Philippines, Indonesia, just that whole that whole cultural region is is where I feel the most at home, and so when I connect with those people, even um, over Christmas, I did a cruise. I don't I don't cruise; it's not my thing. But it was you know it was <laughs> convenient. Um, almost all of the crew on that ship were either Indonesian or Filipino, and I could speak to them both in uh, Tagalog and Bahasa. And you, you wouldn't imagine that the transformation when they're like you know a server comes to your table and he's dropping off a plate, and you're like, oh yeah, Trimakasi, thank you, you know. And, you know, Indonesian, like I just connect to them. I feel mm. like they are very much, uh, they're, I, I think they're very much like my people. So, <laughs> unreal. What is it about, or give me maybe one or two things about Indonesian culture that's better than American or like westernized culture? Oh, well, I think, um, in general, uh, the Indonesian culture is very, um, they're very hospitable. Mm. They do, they, they, they're very accommodating and almost to a fault, they're very accommodating. Like they, they want to make sure that you are happy, that you're comfortable, that you're fed, that you're taken care of. Um, and I've seen that in several, you know, Southeast Asian cultures is it's just part of the way that they operate. And, uh, you could visit, um, even like the poorest family in the poorest province. And the moment you get into their home, they are you know, rolling out the food like, you know, it's a birthday party or something like that. And you're mm. like, well, hold on. I've, I obviously eat well. Like, you don't need to do this. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think, I think the, the, the accommodation, just the, the amount that they want to be just generally pleasant with you is the biggest difference that I can think of. Yeah. It's actually astounding. Um, I've noticed that as a similarity across a lot of Southeast Asian countries. And I remember one time we were in, um, the middle of Vietnam uh, in a place called Ninh Binh and there was a wedding, a Vietnamese wedding happening um, next door to our hostel so we decided oh, like, we'll go and see what it looks like so we're standing at the edge of this wedding party and they seen us and we were the only western people there and they just came and grabbed us and they were like right sit down here's a million beers, here's all the foods, do you want some cigarettes? Come yeah. sing karaoke with us and like before <laughs> we knew it we were like front and center and this vietnamese went just like partying and like that would never happen in the u.s oh, no. the UK. Guess, no chance guess of honor 
<laughs> we uh, I had a we had worked in when I was working in the Middle East. Our dispatchers for the flight operation that I was working for, I think all all of them were Indian, and one of them he was getting married. And he was doing the wedding back in India, and he invited us. He said, hey, you know, my wedding is open. If you guys want to come, you guys can come. And I don't think he counted on it, but you know, six of us, seven of us came, and six of us brought wives. And so there was like 11 Westerners that showed up in this really remote mountain village of, you know, this Kerala province. And uh, it was it was almost embarrassing. As we showed up at the wedding late, which was, you know, mistake number one, We you know, they sent a bus <laughs> for us. The bus got caught in traffic. But they held the wedding, and this is an arranged wedding, right? Like they've they've been waiting to meet each other, and they held the wedding for us. <laughs> and oh uh, when we when we get there, they didn't even let like half the people weren't even in the hall. We get there, and we're just immediately it's like a mosh pit at a concert, and they're like it was hands on us. We're being ushered around. We're being taken in. Uh, what do we get? They gave us uh, I think it was lemons. They gave mm-hmm. us, which was a very uh, tra- traditional thing for that part of wedding, and then. When they lead us in, the thing that we tried to stop them from doing, and they didn't let us stop them from doing, is this whole front row is like all of the closest family members, the ones that can't see anymore, they're blind, they're old, they've got canes, everyone, one's in a wheelchair, and they blew them out of there so that we could sit up front, and we're just like, stop, like, what are you guys doing? But it was such a, it was a big honor, it was, it's a big deal for them to have westerners fly in from around the world to this wedding and and just come you know give their time and give their resources to get there it wasn't an easy place to get to and i think it was really meaningful for our 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 co-worker who's a friend of ours uh that we went to such great lengths to come and celebrate with him and then they turned around and they just kind of showered that back onto us in this gratitude and it was it was a little uncomfortable but you know <laughs> i had to move so i could have a seat i'm just like i'm sorry <laughs> i think that's absolutely beautiful like it's just it epitomizes what that's like and it's why people should travel just because of these amazing random experiences that you run into Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and there's just like there's no way of avoiding them if you're out on the, the road for long enough you run into these crazy stories um, and yeah. it really it must help for you like if I'm imagining back to when I was traveling months ago the if I was making content in that time it would have just been filled with constant stuff and I'm imagining that helps with you as well even if you don't plan anything it mm-hmm. can all there's just stories to uncover one thing I always remember is Casey Neistat. He talks about how he loved living in New York because anytime you walked out the door, there was an opportunity for a new story. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering in terms of like your own content, what are people that inspire you or do you reckon have influenced your kind of style of content over time? Well, I mean, I guess in a roundabout way, Casey Neistat's part of that. Um I really absolutely love Kara and Nate on YouTube. They are phenomenal travel vloggers. They've been traveling full time for seven or eight years now or something like that. And uh, they were inspired by Casey Neistat's video style as well, his way of presenting stories too. So they translated that into their content and I've been following them. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other channels I I follow Um, off the top of my head. There's um, a guy called Downey Live. He's a Canadian. He does a lot of train content, and he is probably one of the most just kind of uh, humble, kind of authentic, nice guys out there. And and the way he travels is just totally like, I'm here, and I want to make everybody happy kind of thing. So he does top-notch production quality, but he's also just the kind of guy that you would want to hang out with. And I would say the same about Karen and Nate. 
Um, through that, the travel vlogger travel panel network is, is pretty diverse. Um, but there are like your central, like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten channels that are just like, they're really hammering it out full time right now. Mm. How have you found it connecting with similar people in the space? Have you, by the sounds of it, you've, you're not afraid of reaching out um, to tour operators and different countries and getting places. So have you done the same with people like within your sphere? Well, I've tried. Um, obviously, like the really big ones are so big, they they must just get hammered with messages all the time. Mm. And so that's something where I think, you know, once you get more into your niche uh, market, um, once you focus that down, then that's when opportunities to get, uh, like for conventions, conferences, classes, those sort of things present themselves. And I think where you make those connections, it becomes more of a personal connection if you do it somewhere like at an event like that. I'm currently enrolled in... Um, the Creator Accelerator program with Nas Daily. I don't know if you're familiar with his content. He does the one-minute video. Um, you know, that's one minute. We'll see you tomorrow sort of thing. He launched an entire academy. Um, it's a five-month-long training program. There's 200 people that got selected for it. We've been broken down into these um, uh, smaller groups for these workshops and whatnot. But it creates a lot of opportunity to connect with other content creators mm. in a more cohort-oriented environment. So I think as my content production increases my network ability will be also higher but i don't i don't shy away from reaching out to them and uh the, the, i do wonder though i tell you what you get, you get in my own head and that's something that you, you got to be able to get away from is like i'll write like a, a pitch to send to a tour operator and then i'll spend like a week rewriting it and i'm like man <laughs> if i had just sent that yeah i would have had my answer right now it would have been a yes or a no and and you know i look at the original copy and i'm like wow oh, it's pretty good actually i could have just used that you know and <laughs> Or it goes through like seven revisions, and by the time I get to revision number eight, I've revised it back into revision number one. And it's just you got to have confidence in what you're doing. And yeah. I'm still, you know, I found that I get more yeses than I get nos uh, when reaching out to people. And I think that it just takes being authentic, um, mm. and then and having a little bit of an acumen where you like you know what you are doing and mm. what you can do, but also having some awareness of what their brand is and what they're trying to do. Uh, because that's that's how you're going to connect with another brand or another creator and and kind of collaborate with them is knowing who it is you're talking to. You yeah. Know, if I have just a, a canned message, it's not going to work for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. They want to have something personalized because anytime you collaborate with someone, you want the other person to know that you care about their content or what they're creating or you actually have something in common and that you don't right. just want something from them. I'm really curious about your personality because you're very, just based on our conversation today, like you're very, just the way you you tell things, you've got like a storytelling method um, to how you go about things. So I'm wondering what it is about Nick Henderson that makes you right for that kind of content creator role. What do you think about your personality suits you best? Well, I do like to tell stories. I, I do like to uh, communicate. I've always been really fond of public speaking as a kid. Uh, once I understood what the concept of a toast was, we couldn't go a meal without me giving a toast. <laughs> and so <laughs> probably annoyed my parents a lot more than they let on, but it was always some, some reason to toast, raise your glasses. And, and, and that was how I kind of grew up. Uh, I really got into, um, storytelling as I, as I got older, you know, and that was acting for a little bit and writing. And I think that my personality is stemmed from that. And I've done a lot of different things in my life. So aside from growing up overseas and traveling to all these other countries, uh, I 
joined the, I served in the army. I served in Iraq. I tell you what, one of my biggest goals, one probably my top goal with this travel content is to go back to Iraq. And I want to go back, not as a soldier. <laughs> I'd like mm. to go back as someone who wants to see the country and the people, because I think back to my time there and I didn't, I didn't see any of them. Uh, I had a mission that I was on and mm. I didn't see the country for what it was. And I didn't do any of that. And so I've been working on this idea and it's something that I've, I've really just kind of getting the f framework for. I want to gather up a couple of veterans, three or four veterans to come with me, people that have maybe been injured or that were injured in Iraq or were experienced loss over there. We all experienced some sort of loss over there. And I'd like to take these, these, these veterans, these guys, and go over there and kind of the way that veterans visit Vietnam now, you know, Vietnam mm. War veterans go back to kind of close that loop and get that closure. I'd like to start doing that with um, Iraqi freedom vets and enduring freedom vets and actually going and helping close the loop, not just see the place, but actually see the country for what it is other than a war mm. zone. So that's, I kind of got on a segue there. That's my big goal right now with this is to start closing some loops for some people. But um, my personality stemmed from a lot of my experiences. I've been through a lot. I've started businesses. I've, I've been in politics. I've done a lot of things that have kind of allowed me to shape this. And I think it allows me to connect with people through storytelling. Yeah, I think storytelling is an absolute superpower. Um, and it's something that I actually haven't done just over 20 episodes now. It's something I see. Um, from a lot of kind of successful entrepreneurs and CEOs and just people that do well in life, it's your ability to be able to convey your message. I really want to dive into you taking former war veterans to Iraq. Mm -hmm. And what I'm curious about is like the mindset that people are in because I have no connection to the veteran community over in the US. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming when you go to war there, the kind of general consensus is that you don't like these people whereas now you're yeah. going back to it trying to really understand them as people and is like is the war veteran community over there still of the mindset that they don't like them and that's something you're trying to change what does that look like i think i think really um there's a lot of players to that and obviously in in the war fighter mindset um you have a mission you have an objective and you have an enemy and the time that you're in that country realistically you're you're force fed so much in terms of propaganda when it comes to fighting wars there's so much one-sided information that you as a soldier or, you know whatever a war fighter that you receive and it really colors your perspective of the country that you're in and of the people that are around you and for for 99 people that were in the marketplaces or in the businesses or the offices in the streets you know maybe one of those 99 was a bad guy but you as a warfighter, you can't afford to think like that because it's it's when you stop looking for the bad guy, that's when he gets, you know, behind the armor, behind the wire. Mm. And so the entire time you're in that in that environment, you've got a you've got a mission that you have to believe in, otherwise you're gonna put yourself at risk. But you also have a posture, a security posture that you have to maintain, otherwise you put yourself and, and the guys that you're fighting with uh, at risk. And so Obviously, that translates into kind of a long-term sort of bias against these people and against this country. And when you meet and speak to veterans who have gone to that region for combat and have uh, especially people that have been injured over there, um, I think what you'll find as you talk to them, the further away we get from the war, the, the more veterans you talk to, the more we just realize how much we were kind of used in really? fighting that war. Yeah. And, and it becomes really apparent, like in this, um, 
the ridiculous pulled out of Afghanistan, we really just left our allies over there spiraling. But what we wound up really doing here in the United States is you took all of these people, these thousands of, of men and women that had served in that country, and you more or less invalidated their sacrifices by just saying, ah, that didn't work, we're out of here. So mm. it's created a bit of a resentment to the war and to what it, what it meant to be there. And so my goal, my objective with this would be to gather up these, these veterans that are um, healing from physical injuries or emotional injuries. And, and that is something that we really struggle with. And, and I think that taking them over there and showing them, especially in Iraq, the work that we did mattered and the people that we were working around, the families that were there, really did benefit from us being there. I want, you know, I want them to see that this country is a, is a, a country that's got a vibrant culture. They have music, they have, they have uh, beliefs, they have stories that they tell. Um, as far as that country is concerned, I mean, you've got artifacts and, and relics and temples that go back into, you know, pre prehistory time. Like, it's just a remarkable place that we did not really appreciate for what it was when we were there. I think it would be a great opportunity to kind of, like I said, close the loop. Mm. Come back, heal those injuries. I think um, even for me, like I think of some of the places that I was at over there, some of the things that happened while I was in Iraq, it would be really cathartic to go back and stand in some of those same places and get that closure. What do you think the reception will be like for Americans returning to Iraq? What's the, because you said that the, the part of the reason that you were doing this was for the local communities to keep them safe mm-hmm. as well. So is that the general consensus that you reckon you'd receive? I think with something like this, we have a, I think there were a lot of people in Iraq that were very grateful um, Mm. for us to be there. A lot of Iraqis that were grateful for us to be there. They, they weren't happy and they were being persecuted. Um, At the end of the day, I think that veterans coming back to Iraq with the intent of really seeing the country and the people I think would be absolutely well received. And it'd be really great to kind of link back up with some of the interpreters or um, the Iraqi police and army that we were working with alongside and say, Hey, you know, let's, let's meet your family. Let's, let's, uh, let's see what work we did do over here. If there was, if there was good that came out of this, let's go, let's go find it Mm. and, uh, and take a look at it together side by side. And I think that would be well received. Mm. Awesome. And do you reckon when you, you do this, you'll make, travel content around it absolutely absolutely i I think it would be a story that would just just has to be told and and the reason for that is because if we can get you know five veterans over there and 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 go through this this cathartic healing process and close the loop you know but but produce videos that kind of tell that story the the benefit of that and the benefit of way media works right now or social media right works right now is that it has a ripple effect we help these guys kind of you know, process their emotions and, and what they went through. But then the veterans that didn't make the trip or the guys that couldn't make the trip or the families that maybe lost someone over there mm. can kind of see what, what is going on and they benefit from that healing and they get healing too. So it's a, it's a matter of giving back. And I think if you're doing anything, you got to give back uh, for it to actually have a real, a real meaning. Otherwise, you're just doing it for yourself. That was going to be one of my questions, something that I've picked up over this entire conversation is that a lot of the whys behind why you're doing it is because you're helping other people as you're maybe helping them kind of display their life or their message or what their career is or helping veterans reconcile and 
Iraqis see the other side of you guys and so on, so on, so on. Why do you think you're why do you think you're a nice person? Because like <laughs> not not everyone's a good person. Not everyone does altruistic things like this. So why why do you do it? You know, I think ultimately, um <laughs> well hmm. It's funny, I've never actually been asked why I'm a nice person. I just kind of just go through life. <laughs> um, I've done a, a lot of things and I've been, uh, I've been altruistic and I've been selfish. And so I know what both sides of that coin look like. I think for me anymore, and, and like I was talking about taking people just to other countries and seeing them react to being in other countries, um, knowing that that person is growing and, and that I'm able to kind of be a part of that journey for them. Um, that's what kind of fill, fills me up. It gives me, it gives me the power to the energy to keep going on. Mm. Um, helping people heal, helping people connect, helping people kind of rationalize the things that they've gone through. I think that that is just, that is, that is exactly what life is for. Like you say that people aren't uh, generally altruistic. I actually would, would tend to disagree. I think that the world itself is kind of a bitter place and it has forced people in general back into their shells. But if you, if given the chance, people do want to help. They want to, they want to, you know, hold the door open or they want to help the, the old lady across the street. I think it's wired into us to, mm. um, to be that way. And so I think I'm just doing a, a little bit more in terms of putting it out there. I want to, I want to be a part, uh, a positive influence in the world and I want to take away anymore, you know? Mm, I love that and by the sounds of it it sounds as if your content is very much going to act like a kind of middle ground between two sides and I'm just wondering you've obviously had experience with politics as well what's your thoughts on social media polarizing people to the point where we do see like I have a tainted view of the world now where I see people as maybe inherently bad on both sides both the left and the right so right. like where do you see do you see like a gap being bridged there and what's your thoughts on it in general social social media is poison and i know that like coming from a guy who's like launching a youtube channel and and putting social media out there it's really weird to say that um but social media is poison and i think one of the best things that i ever did for my life was turning off notifications like we all we're all walking around with a phone in our hands everywhere and uh, there's a great documentary that uh, kind of dives into the neurochemical process that happens in our brains when that that ding goes off. Um, and it was on it was on Netflix. It was called the Social Social Dilemma. Net. Yeah, Social Dilemma. I've seen that Social Dilemma. And it, and it talks about um, the neurochemical response that we get when we get a ding or a buzz. Even like I'm one of those guys that doesn't have my phone on with sounds because I'm often in, in meetings or I'm doing something. I can't have it dinging all the time, so I've got it on vibrate. Every time that vibrate goes off, you get that dopamine hit. You know, what is it? You know, right? And and we've really been kind of farmed out to that. And in the same way that casinos make their machines, you know, blinky and loud. And they and they and every now and then they just play the sound of somebody hitting a jackpot. They don't even have to hit a jackpot. You mean empty casino. Every now and then you hear coins fall. And it just fires those, those, those triggered receptors for people that are addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to polarizing... Um, our views of people in the world and of different countries, different religions, social media has actually played a, a huge role in that. Uh, media in general has played a huge role in that. I think the the twenty four hour news cycle is 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 directly responsible for a lot of our biases because they benefit the most from the amount of time that you spend looking at at the screen and just consuming their media. And I'm mm. sitting here going like, yeah, I want to make a YouTube channel, consume my media. <laughs> 
I'm doing it in a different way. I don't, I don't want to be negative, man, but, but the, the, the sad thing is, the unfortunate thing is, you know, you can tell a story about a firefighter getting a kitten out of a tree and you're not going to retain an audience. But I tell you what, if there's a building on fire and a car's upside down and there's a riot going on, people are, because you, you want to be safe. Mm. That is a human instinct is, is safety, right? You, you, you've got a shelter, you've got to have food, you've got to have safety. Like there, it's just one of those basic needs. And so when your safety is threatened, your, your animalistic instinct is to go, okay, what's happening? How do I not get involved in that, right? And so they keep this horrifying, terrifying news cycle going, and, and they keep you hooked on the screens. Well, then, because we're hooked on screens, now you've got notifications going off, and you've got all this polarizing content on social media. And social media itself has allowed us to be so insensitive to other people. You know, you can say whatever the heck you want online and nobody's going to punch you in the face for it, right? You just block that person. You can say whatever the heck you want, block them and move on. And you don't ever have to think about that again, but it sticks with the person you said it to typically. And so it's something that, you know, it's social media's presence has really polarized all of us. So I'd say get off of social media if you can. Yeah, I'm a big advocate of that. Like, I don't have a personal Instagram um, don't have a TikTok account, don't have Snapchat um only have a twitter and i found twitter to be incredibly useful actually twitter is always termed the the free university Mm -hmm. um i'm wondering see with all of this because this is something i'm kind of struggling to navigate as well is their ability to feed into the system but change it from the inside out because my thinking is like if your content speaks to people in a positive way and maybe you can even like preface your content by being like oh like make sure you don't spend loads and loads of time scrolling youtube shorts or tiktok like is there a way to actually change it from the inside i don't know it's such a big monster right Our, our our addiction to instant gratification is is so so pervasive it is in our in our bones you know if we and i and we we talked about this um on, on Twitter, you and I are in the messages with, briefly. It was like, if you want uh, you know, food delivered to your door, you can have it. And you can have it within minutes. If you want a car to go somewhere, you can have it within minutes. If you uh, want a new partner, you just swipe. You got a new partner. You want to uh, block somebody that you don't like. It takes less than a second to do. Our instant gratification cycle is, is just getting shorter and shorter. And short-form content, anywhere you look, is, is what people are saying is the future. So TikToks, Reels, YouTube Shorts um facebook shorts there's there's all this short form content you're getting 11 to 12 seconds of viewership out of it people are just doom scrolling through this stuff so how do you change that from the inside i think is authenticity authenticity and quality you know if you're producing long form content that's telling a a real story that actually touches lives i think that's how you do that Mm. but how do you retain viewers right now we're fighting a society (laughs) or you know a society that um just loves their short form content and their fear. So mm. I'd say not tapping into any of those things. Don't sell out. Don't sell out. You know, um, you get the the videos that post the what is it called clickbait titles. You know, don't do that. You know, don't don't hook and line people just because you want to get more views. Be authentic. You know, be a force for good. Be a force for change. Be a voice for positivity. And I think that's how it works. If we can just start committing to that as creators, you and I, just mm. being that voice for good. I think what will happen, or this is my theory of what will happen, is that there will be like a subculture that will form of people that really value long-form content and just the the value of 
their own attention and there's going to be like this subculture where people are actually really focused on it um, and spend less time consuming. One thing I've noticed that's made a massive difference in my life lately is, so I've now produced over 20 of these podcasts and alongside them a bunch of writing and setting up of things and I've spent more time in the past three months creating than I have consuming. And I was mm-hmm. wondering if that's a mindset shift that you've noticed. You've obviously been creating content for a long time, but I'm just wondering yeah. like, what differences you've noticed in just the mode of creating rather than consuming? It's funny. I actually enjoy creating far more than I enjoy consuming. Mm-hmm. I I do. I And not even like, I, I'm not huge. I don't have a giant followership. I just love to create. I think that people are meant to create. And actually, I let me see. I was, I was writing down something on this. I don't know if it's something I sent you, but uh, let me just see. Um, it was something that I did want to talk about. It kind of plugs right into this. And I called it, um, I wrote it today. I call it the five minute guru. All right. Mm. And, um, this is, I've, I've consumed, I have consumed a lot of content. I am not going to say that I haven't. Um, and in that I have read a ton of books. I have gone to conferences, seminars, I've watched videos. I have probably read every marriage book in, in the universe and relationship book in the universe. Like I've got the whole library. Um, personal growth, personal development, people like Tony Robbins, David Goggins, um, you just, you, you, you name them, I've read their stuff, read their content. And I've condensed it down into five, five steps. This is five steps, five minute guru to, to living your best life, right? All right. So uh, eat less of what is bad for you and eat more of what is good for you. Drink more water than you think any rational person should ever drink in a day. <laughs> All right. It's, and that's something like, I'm like, you feel like you're drowning by the end of the day. But you really <laughs> your body is, your body runs on that stuff. Or just pouring out your eyes and out your yeah, mouth. Yeah, <laughs> I think the worst part is like, like you do have the, there's a bathroom issue that comes with that. Like yeah. you're like, I'm really hydrated, but I can't be more than 20 steps away. Like I got <laughs> Um Go to bed early, wake up early. However you do it, aim for eight hours. And, and that is a big deal. I recently watched a study on, um, Again, more, more, more neurochemistry, but the hippocampus, right, is a gland in the brain uh, responsible for a lot of different things. One of those things is the um, production of memory or, you know, allowing you to create new memories and long-term memories, et cetera. And when you deprive your brain of sleep, one of the first things that that affects, this study was looking at, is it affects the hippocampus. It essentially dries it out and you stop producing the neurochemicals that you need to create new long memories, And so we live in a society right now, one, we're on the screens all the time. We're consuming media all the time. These screens, they're designed to keep you hooked and on them Mm. Uh, with the notifications and with all of that. You know, you go to bed, the moment you start scrolling, you're getting that blue light, it's firing receptors off in your brain. That's going to keep you awake even longer. Like you should not even have your phone in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. Um, it causes you to get sleep deprived. And when you get into that state, your hippocampus starts to wane and you start you know, having trouble producing these new memories. And it just, it has a longer term effect on your energy levels. It keeps you from being able to kind of be all that you can be. Mm. So, you know, limiting your screen time, but also getting that eight hours of sleep. Um, create. This is the item that fits into what we were talking about. So, and what I just I believe that humans are made to be creative. For some of us, it means playing a musical instrument. For others, it means painting, dancing, writing poetry. Like, I think that we are, as a species, very creative. And I think people get into their own heads about that. And they tell themselves they can't. Like, I know that I can't paint. Mm. I, but I've tried it. I've tried it. But I can make videos. And I've been doing photography for, 
you know, 20 years and I love photography. That's my art form. I can write, you know, find a way to create because I think it just, it unlocks a part of your brain that allows you to kind of be happy. It allows you to step aside from life's problems and gives you a, a platform that is yours. Mm. Was that, was that all five there? So we had, no, it wasn't. There was, there was but the I last one. <laughs> Let's see. So the first one was, um, eat less of what's eat bad, less, more of what's good. And yep. Then drink more water, go to bed early, never stop learning. So read books, TV, you know, okay. try things you've never done, go places you've never done and create Those okay. are the five keys. Yeah. I think you're absolutely so never, right. I think human, yeah. the human species is absolutely, uh, a creative, creative law. And I, I had a conversation with Alex Banks. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Um, recently he's pretty big on Twitter, uses AI to grow things. Um, am I oh, com- yeah, I did, actually. I saw your guys' uh, your, your podcast with him. Yeah, the conversation with him was um, equally as awesome, and he was telling me how all humans have this agency inside them, but we are fed beliefs from an early age or told by mm-hmm. parents or even just, a little comment here by a friend when you're seven years old that, oh, maybe you're not creative, you're not musical. And that just becomes part of your identity and it's so hard to shift that. Have you noticed any kind of like defaults that just weren't true, kind of beliefs about yourself that you've changed over time and what were they? Uh, well, I actually had a very supportive upbringing, so I, <laughs> I was one of I was one of those things where you could do anything. Those loving um, parents, oh goddamn! Yeah, they're the best. They're the best. <laughs> um, I really did. Ha- I, I do have two very loving parents that are still with me, which is I'm just so blessed to have my parents in my life. Mm. Um, and they do still support me to this day. You know, I'm thirty, almost thirty seven. I'm thirty seven this weekend, and my parents are still like my biggest fans. They're like, "Hey, man, you're doing great things. We love seeing what you're achieving." Like that has been a big part of that. I think right now, actually one of my biases is one that I've probably created for myself. And uh, that is where I'm at in my life right now uh, is not where I pictured myself being. Mm -hmm. And I have spent the last four years, five years kind of off of the trajectory that I had initially built for myself. And so now I'm in a place where I'm standing here going like, man, I was supposed to be doing this five years ago. And I'm about to turn 37 years old and I'm looking at all these other travel creators going like, I'm almost 40. Like, does anybody want to watch a 40 year old travel creator? Like, <laughs> does anyone want to learn from me? Like I need to go get a job in a bank somewhere or something. Like, I just... <laughs> so I, so I do have these kind of constraints that are in my own psyche that are my own creating mm. that I do wrestle with. And it's kind of, uh, something that I am, am dealing with because I'm committed to, to doing this journey. I'm committed to building this business and doing these things, but it is at the back of my head going like, man, you're not the young chicken that you used to be, or you're not the young buck mm-hmm. that you used to be. And things are going to be difficult for you because that's not the way our society is geared. Um, mm-hmm. And I got to be very cog- cognizant of that voice. I got to be very conscious and not allowing it to gain too much ground because our own fears, our own beliefs about ourselves, those are the ones that'll crush you. You know, it's easy enough and it's hurtful to hear other people say it, you know, and I've had people say that to me. Nobody wants to watch your stuff. Everyone says you're bad, you know, and I've got people in my life that have really talked down to what I'm doing. And I, I can do a pretty good job of shutting those voices out. My voice is the one that I hear the loudest. Mm. And that's the one that has the most impact on whether or not I'm doing the right thing or not. And keeping that voice a positive voice is important. 
Do you think that our society is inherently ageist when it comes to like the travel content that they want to consume? Absolutely. I think, um, well, it comes down to two things that sell, right? Like you, you, you've always the old adage is, you know, sex sells, right. And that's where you see, um, the car model, the car has got the pretty models on it or the, the perfume commercials, just mm. the gorgeous models on it. The, the, even Burger King hires like the beautiful model to eat the burger. And you're like, she hasn't touched a burger in 20 years. And I don't know what's going on. Um, it's confusing, but she's pretty. Okay. We'll buy the burger. Um, <laughs> So I think our society is definitely geared towards that. And it's not like a new thing either. You know, you go walk through a museum and, and look at the marble, marble sculptures, right? All those statues, beautiful figures, um, beautiful people. For the most part, you know, actually, that's not fair. There's a lot of um, great art that was uh, not so beautiful. But um, I think in terms of ageist society, I think absolutely. I think you expect people to, you know, you, you expect a certain youngness when it comes to this sort of thing especially it's new content new media new things you don't expect to have a professor from the university being the guy mm. that's doing it you know and so where i think you can overcome that where i can overcome that is just being uh producing quality content you know okay so maybe mm. i'm not the, the the young buck that i used to be but i'm producing content that is meaningful it's impactful it gives back and it actually is done in a, a way that people can enjoy Mm. And I think that those are the two kind of pedestals on the scale, kind of. Uh, yeah, I think part of that as well, just from an outside perspective, is you can bring so much wisdom and perspective mm -hmm. and life experience that anyone around my age can't bring. Your time during serving as um, a soldier in the war, your time as a helicopter pilot abroad, there's just so much life experience that you've had that you can bring to it. Um, and so much that me and other people like me as a young audience can learn from it. So I'm really excited to see where that goes. I want to bring things full circle. So I'm 23 just now, and I'm wondering if you were to give some life advice to 23 year old yourself, what would you what would you say? I'd say 23 year old me would have been just freshly out of the army. Okay. Um, the the advice that I would give myself back then would be to not get swept up in consumerism, uh, for one. You know, I didn't need to buy new cars, but I bought new cars. Um, and, and what I have right now, I actually have a very old, very used car, but it's paid off. Mm -hmm. And in my 20s, my identity, and I think this is, is really the big one, is your identity isn't in the things that you own. It's in, you know, your soul. It's in who you are. And so I had to have a brand new truck. Well, those are, you know, $50,000, $60,000. Well, that put me into debt. It really limited what I could do. I could not travel because I was squished by the, the payment that I had to make. I had to have the brand new iPhone. I had to have the brand new, uh, I had a great camera set up. And, and that I did kind of need, as I was building a photography business, I found that I needed to expand that. But I could have done the same things that I did with lesser equipment. I told myself, I got it in my own head, you need this, you need to buy that, you need to buy this. Mm. So I got swept away in an identity that was rooted in things and not experiences. Mm. Um, so I think the biggest thing I would say to myself would be, um, don't do that, <laughs> for one. Uh, the other one would be uh, something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is until you're really, truly... Um, able to be alone with yourself, uh, you should not be with someone else. 
Um, I think a lot of people root their own identity in a relationship perspective. They say, man, I absolutely have to be with another person to be my complete self. And that isn't true. Another person cannot complete you. So you're really, you're really only kind of doing yourself a disservice because to, to be getting into relationships really fast and really early is you limit your potential in terms of growing and coming into your own mm. being. Um, and really, you take away from that other person as well because you're not able to give fully to that relationship as well, too. So I rushed into an early marriage uh, as I was getting out of the Army, and it, it lasted like six months. It was an Army marriage, and it just was not not meant to be. Um, but from there, it was just a string of relationships. And everyone, sure, you learn something along the way, but ultimately, I think what I would have benefited best from would have been really trying to connect with you know who I am and what my mission is in life, mm. and then building around that a standard. And that's that's the the other one. Have a standard. Know who you are. Know what you want. Know what you deserve. And then do not stray from your standards. Mm. Set them and stand by them. Because the moment you start making compromises on this or that or this, you'll find that the erosion of your foundation kind of precipitates quickly and you'll find that you start you stop being on the rock and you start being in the sand so set your standards set them high and stick to them i think that last point especially about setting the standards something i connect with on massively and it's something i've been thinking about recently as well is that like as a man there's so much that you have to do to be worthy of a relationship or worthy of connection you have to earn a lot of money, you have to go to the gym, you have to make sure that you are successful in your career, you have to be well-spoken, you have to be articulate, you have to be well-dressed, you have to be well-groomed. And then for us, like, and this is just something that's been drilled into me as well, is like a woman just needs to be attractive to be worthy of a partner. And mm -hmm. that's something that was like a conscious thought for me in the past, and it's only within the past few years Um and my past relationship really opened my eyes to it where we just like connected with her on a really, really deep level. Um, yeah. Where it opened my eyes, I was like, oh shit, like I'm actually, I'm worth more than just someone who's beautiful. I'm worth someone that like cares about me and respects me and loves me and has their right. own interests and stuff as well. And that's why I found out through my past relationship. So it's mm -hmm. such a recent learning that we as men are worth more than just I guess just like beauty and the other partner, and 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 we're we're worth more than just being um, kind of a provider. Mm. You know, we 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 deserve to have a partner that that is going to feed into us as much as we feed into them. And and it is a very um, instinctive thing for a man to to want to provide um, in a relationship. You know, and you, and you see that from the early stages. You go out on a date and it's just kind of instinctive that I'm going to pick up the check. You know, I'm going to provide for you. I can provide food. And you could you could argue biologics all day long and go back to animalistic instinct in terms of, you know, providing for, for our mates. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if, in, back then there was a give and take, right? You know, I'm going to I'm going to provide food and protection and shelter and whatnot. And you're going to be my mate. And you're going to provide for uh the the children in the cave and you're gonna be you're gonna you're gonna take care of all that stuff too it was very much a mutually supportive relationship as our society has evolved into one where all of our comforts are, are met immediately uh through consumerism um 
that dynamic has changed, but the biology hasn't. So you're right. We do still have these ideas that we need to be um, providing and strong and, and just all this, all that list that you just gave, it's all kind of hardwired into our biology. Um, but the dynamic has shifted where right now with as disposable as relationships are treated, none of that really matters if you aren't doing that for yourself first. And the thing that I like to say, that may have been confusing. The thing that I like to say the most when it comes to this topic is that until you can love yourself or take care of yourself fully, you can't do that for someone else. Mm -hmm. And so um, society tells us all these things. You got to go lift a bunch of weights. You got to, you know, have a bunch of money. You got to do all these things to be quality, to be, have a high enough quality to be worthy of a mate. Unless you're doing that for yourself, it doesn't matter because you're not going to attract a mate that really not only deserves it, but is going to appreciate what you put in. Um, mm -hmm. And then conversely, when looking for a partner in this life, uh, she's got to have her stuff together too. Because the biggest, the biggest trap that we fall into is, is finding this just totally knockout beautiful woman. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, right? I'm not. Um, but if she can't support herself and she doesn't know her own worth, her own value, if she doesn't have a relationship with herself that empowers her, you know, she knows her own worth as well, you're going to find that she's seeking that in her identity, in the relationship with you. And unless you're meeting those needs of hers specifically the way that she has them in her head uh, that she wants them to met in a certain way there's always going to be a void where you're not meeting her needs and that is going to foster some discontent and so having yourself figured out and then meeting somebody who has themselves figured out it kind of sets you guys up on a platform where you're able to just grow each other beyond mm. that point i think having yourself figured out is Maybe something I'd somewhat thought about but never been able to articulate in the way that you've just done it there. Um, and I think it really fully explains it. And it's something that's hard to do in a world where relationships are so disposable. If you look yeah. at like Tinder or Bumble or Hinge, like it's just, mm -hmm. can I fuck this person? Do I want this person? And it's just like, you can scroll through thousands of people in a day. Yeah. Whereas in the past, you'd maybe have one conversation a week and there was an actual gap between conversating with them. You'd have to go up to them in a coffee shop, turn them right. around, be like, hello, my name's this. Like, would you go out uh, to get coffee? Now it's just, it's constant. People don't do that anymore. People don't do that anymore. Like, um, talking to people in public? Are you kidding me? Strangers? No way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it's, it's like that, um, the airport is a great, uh, a great way to kind of... Um, see that in, in action, right? Airports used to be just, I mean, they're still kind of loud, but they used to be really loud because people used to talk. Uh, before the advent of phones, where we're able to swipe left and right, and we're able to, you know, be consumed in media, right? Um, we'd go to the airport, and you would talk to the people that are traveling. You would, you would talk to them, you'd learn where they're from, where they're going, why they're going. You know, um, you would have these conversations. People don't do that anymore. So the idea of walking up to someone that you find attractive in a coffee shop or, or wherever uh, and turning around and asking them on a date, like that is just so counter, it's counterculture right now, man. It makes you mm. a rebel if you do that. Like, <laughs> Yeah, it really puts you out there. It's just, I find it worrying because I've got sucked into it myself of being on like these dating apps and just, there's a certain point of it where you just don't see people as people anymore. And that's a fucking terrifying thought to have mm -hmm. is that so many people are just, oh, it's just 
the thing I found worse about it as well is like I've spoke to a lot of women about this as well. And there's a clear dichotomy between how men experience dating apps and how women experience dating apps. For men, they might go on Tinder and they'll get 13 matches in two weeks. Whereas a girl can go on Tinder and she'll get 300 likes within the first few hours. And I spoke to women about this and I was like, why are you actually on dating apps? Are you looking for a relationship? Are you looking for anything? No, we're just looking for an ego boost. Like, as a really honest reflection... Just looking for an ego boost, not looking for anything. Whereas from the guy side of things, I think a lot of men are very lonely right now um, because yeah. they feel maybe disenfranchised and they're looking for a relationship on this app that's never, ever mm-hmm. going to work out. And it's just going to be yeah. like this feedback loop of just self-depreciation. And at the end of the day, the corporate interests, they get what they want. You know, he's on the screen uh for hours a day swiping 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 and she's on the screen getting her little ego boost and her little dopamine hits every time somebody tells her she's pretty right yeah. and he gets an ego boost just from the idea that maybe maybe this is the one mm-hmm. you know and they just keep they keep plugged in oh do you want more do you want more attention maybe you buy a package maybe you give me yeah. you know, 99 cents <laughs> like you, uh, uh, a promo or something like that like it's all about sales and i and i tell you like even um these amazon tablets right now the, the fire tablets um those pe- parents are really they're buying into those and oh this is great it's a cheap tablet it's super affordable it does all of the things of a of a tablet and i'm going to give this to my kid well, i don't know if you've ever looked at a fire tablet it is ads it is amazon directly marketing to children and it's they're starting the cycle super young like even the lock screen you can't change that it's an ad from amazon it's an ad for a book and it's typically a children's book especially if you've set up a children's account on it, it starts to learn your child's preferences in terms of what they want to see and read and starts advertising to them. And next thing you know, you're getting, hey, can we buy this? Can we buy this? Can we buy mm. this? And the consumerism is being started really young. And so on the on the dating side of things, you get older now, that's the same thing. Your consumerism is now in the dating apps. And uh, like, you know, do you want to get those likes? Do you want to be actually getting connections? I think I really like what you said about men being disenfranchised right now. I think that one of the one of the saddest things in society is the erosion of the of the male of the masculine of the masculine man, um, the man that actually lives up to what it means to be a masculine man, is working hard, who is providing for a family, who is you know just that steadfast, reliable, strong, sturdy, masculine traits. You know, someone who's respectful of women, who is able to stand up when it is, they need to stand up. We have as a society, and we're seeing it, it's really bad, um, they, they talk about toxic masculinity. And, and masculinity in and of its own right isn't toxic. Um, mm. And I've written about this. I've actually been published in uh, a couple of newspapers with this. But masculinity in and of itself isn't toxic. It's actually, when you look into it, it's the absence of masculinity. This is where you're seeing you know, families, broken families, absent fathers. Um, this is where you're seeing children that then fall into uh, the traps of... Um, uh, being criminal, criminally inclined or misbehaving, that sort of thing. It's just, it's tragic. Mm. And society as a condition or as an unintended side effect. And when you talk to former feminists who were part of the movement back in the 60s, uh, you talk to them like, we did not mean for this. Mm. <laughs> um, there's, a be- and there's a belief that, they, that things have gone too far. The erosion of the male role in our society has been so complete that when you say that men feel lonely right now, absolutely, they feel totally replaceable. There's no value placed on the man in the household or the man in the workforce anymore. And you see that in marketing materials. You see that in 
um, hiring practices and in policies, um, the mail has really been turned kind of into a scapegoat and a replaceable scapegoat at that. There's a whole flock of scapegoats that you can choose from. Mm, I think what a lot you're saying there does really resonate with me. And I think the worrying thing is, is like I'll have conversation with female friends um, and like a lot of the dialogue in the past has been how women have been mistreated or they don't have equality and stuff like that. And a lot, a lot, a lot of these things that they say are very valid, and I completely understand where they're coming from. But you mention the fact that maybe men are more lonely, or more likely to commit suicide, or more likely to be incarcerated, or less likely to have access mm-hmm. to their children in a divorce settlement, or they're way more lonely now. And you'll just all you get is scoffs. Like it's so rare that you'll actually have someone that will properly listen to you. And you're like, no, I'm trying to reach a middle ground here. I'm trying to tell you that this is how people are feeling. It's not, we're not trying to say our issue is bigger than yours. We're trying to reach a middle ground and tell you that we have issues too. But yep. as as like a white man, you're never going to be listened to. Right. And that because of everything that goes along with being that person. Well, and the Me Too movement, um, though they were really trying to achieve... Um, they had really clear goals. They were really trying to achieve like uh, you know, justice for women that have been um, been through some just horrible things. They omitted, they kept out an entire subsect of, of humanity in men. It, it, it was, it, it, per, it propagated this idea um, that men can't be the victims of abuse or of um, sexual coercion or of mistreatment in relationships. It, it really put men um, straight men in a corner and said they are not part of this. They are the they are the problem. They are the reason we are suffering. And and it really put this kind of um, real stigma on 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 men in general, but in a masculine man, masculine straight man, like it's just it's unfortunate because mm. it it silenced voices that shouldn't have been silenced, and it's created an environment. You speak about uh, suicide for men those rates are just increasing. It's staggering mm. um, how many men are killing themselves. And a lot of that comes down to if a man doesn't have, you know, his role as a man, if he can't be a man anymore in society, then what is he going to do? If he can't, if he's, you know, not able to be a provider for his family, what is he going to do? If he's not able to be, you know, working anymore because of, uh, you know, the way things have changed, what's he going to do? You know, people have to have purpose in life. They've got to have a mission and they've taken that away. There's a lot of different movements that have done that in, in regards to different subsects of culture that they've excluded or turned into scapegoats. Mm. What do you see is the the best way of reaching a common understanding? Because in my mind, it's not like social media compartmentalizes these two groups. And it says, right, men should hate women. White people should hate black people, black people should hate white people, and it like it pits people against each other. Whereas I think right. like 99% of humanity are understanding people and we can reach a common ground, mm-hmm. but yeah. we're just fed into different systems. What's the best way of doing this? Just having an open dialogue? Where, where do we reach a standpoint where we can actually conversate with each other? It's hard. People are seeking... seeking um, confirmation bias right they they you gravitate towards people who think the way that you do that feel the way that you do and so when you hear opinions that are like yours you you suffer from confirmation bias and you think those people are right and anyone who speaks against you is wrong and social media and the news media um has really propagated that effect in our culture 
where we are absolutely a divided people because they tell us to be. So I think the the way that we get away from that is getting away from social media, mm. getting away from the notifications, the the doom scrolling. That's, you know, people just constantly scrolling, getting the bad input, the bad input, you know, this horrible thing happened, this horrible thing is happening now because of it. Got to get away from that. Life was never meant to be lived in a screen. It was definitely not meant to be lived in a screen. Mm. And so many people are are trapped in this cycle where that is that is where they're at you know six seven eight hours a day they're just on their phones and they're getting this media pumped into them and these media organizations make their money from them being plugged in permanently mm. and so it benefits them to keep us divided so the the, the way that we get away from that one yeah we got to get off of the screens get away from the, the media they are not interested in our best interests and then two is having um Having that capacity within ourselves, finding that capacity within ourselves to have conversations with people who are on the other side of an issue and not go into those conversations with the intent to respond to them, and but more to hear them, to understand them, mm. to get their viewpoint on things. And I think that if the conversation regarding um, men's rights in particular, but in, in all of these environments where we've uh, talked about um, you know, racism, um, genderism ageism and all of these instances just having both sides of this co of the conversation being open to hearing from the other side would be a big step in the right direction awesome i think what you've just said there and summarized kind of comes full circle with the entire conversation the entire purpose of traveling and getting out there and seeing different parts of the planet and how that makes more understanding and a relationship with social media and content and mm -hmm safe ways to act with that um, and I think that's a beautiful way to round off this conversation one thing that I always do um, at the end of every conversation is I ask my guest to reflect really honestly um, about their own character and this is always a hard one to do because it feels as if we're always the easiest judge of other people's characters but it's always yeah. really really hard to understand ourselves but I'm going to ask you to be really candid with me what is one thing you think other people admire about you most? And from a loved one's perspective, what is one thing you think people look at you and think you need to improve on the most? Yeah, I can see how that would be a hard question to, uh, <laughs> to answer. Um, I think that when it comes to a quality of mine or, or a trait of mine that I think people admire the most, uh, it is that I have a, a desire to kind of connect with a lot of people and to learn their stories. I, I would call that a kind of an empathy. I like to know the person. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of people have just, I can, I think they feel it's, it's sincere. And I believe it is sincere as well as this desire to connect with people. That's why I named the, the channel. I went through a couple of different names, um, but I named the, the new, the new channel connected. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not about travel. It's about connecting with people. And so that is, that is what I want to do or connecting and connecting people with, other people and other cultures and other societies. So that is uh, central to who I am. And I think that people do appreciate that. Mm. And then from a loved one's perspective, the thing that they, I think that I probably need to change. Um, I think the thing that I, I've been, I think that my loved ones would be saying, have been saying uh, is goes back to what we were talking about earlier about um, knowing myself and, and knowing my standards and then not straying from them. Um, because, you know, I, I, it sounds like I've led this, this, this great life and I've had all these accomplishments and all these achievements. I've had a lot of failures too. Mm. Um, and I think that is something that 
people do gloss over when they talk about or when they reflect on their life is, is how much they failed along the way. And one of those areas where I have really kind of let myself down is that I, I say like, these are my standards, these are the things that I want, but as things start to not go my way, um, I start to bargain with myself, I start to barter, and I tend to stray from those standards that I set for myself. Uh, so I think that if my family were to say something, or my loved ones would say something, I would say, hey, you need to be committed to who you are and to the standards that you've set for yourself. Awesome, I think that was beautiful. Thank you for being so open and honest with that as well. I know it's, it's tough to do, um, so I really do appreciate it. Um, just before we finish off, do you want to kind of tell people a kind of quick summary or like where to go to kind of connect with you and see your content? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I am, the channel is connected with Nick Henderson on YouTube. Uh, there's a couple of videos on there right now. I've been traveling, I'm producing content. Um, so there's going to be more videos coming that way. Uh, the way that you and I met was on Twitter. And that is where I'm probably the most active in terms of getting my attention and talking to me would be on there. So that's wandering Nick, but there's no I in there. It's W A N D E R N G Nick. The other mm. one was taken. So, um, <laughs> and then, uh, for, for short form content, I am producing short form content. And so it's, uh, I do have a TikTok account. It's wandering Nick, just like on Twitter, same mm. Twitter handle as it is there. And then for Instagram, uh, more short form content there. It's Nick dot the roaming pilot, but I might change that in the future to kind of just get a total brand alignment uh, between all of the accounts. So, uh, but right now you can find me pretty much on all social media platforms. And most of my focus is going to be in long form content production for YouTube. So I would say the best way to find me is to connect with me um, on YouTube, connected with Nick Henderson. Perfect. 